Welcome to the Reimagined Podcast, a podcast that seeks to reimagine faith and life and community as we link, learn, and live together. I'm Greg English, along with Brad Hoffman and Brian Dupuy. Today, on episode 63, we continue the conversation about full brain Christianity and spiritual growth. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hey. Hello. What's happening? Good Good day. Good day, man. Good you guys are day. fired oh, good up. Day. Good day. Good day. <laughs> that's right. This is right. a little that's later right. in the day than what we do, so I'm no, really no. looking forward to the... Um, that's right. You've got your coffee. You I got, got your water. Yeah. yeah. And I have nothing. Yeah. Y'all are ready. Right. Yeah. No, yeah, we're, we're ready. We're carrying you. <laughs> we're good to go. Yes. Good yeah. to go. <laughs> you better be strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I uh, uh, hope Memorial Day was good for you. Yeah, yeah, I did. Man, what a week. I got to go out. And one day I was at an MLB stadium. The next day I was at a double-A baseball stadium. I mean... Wow, yeah. That's like it just Little League, right? It's great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So Well, we were up in the mountains and uh no joke, from the time we got up there, uh up until Monday, Memorial Day when we left, we were in a thick blanket of fog. Oh yeah. Really? Just covered really? the mountain. Yes. Oh, yes. Man. Yep. Mm. So uh it was quite, you know. The glory, the Shekinah glory, <laughs> was, was upon you. Was huh? on the mountain. The altar and, uh, was heavy. Man, oh man, huh? I so, can tell you're glowing today. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I just lost the veil just before we came over, but yeah, uh, yeah. that's great. So Monday was beautiful as yeah. we were packing up and heading out. But yeah, uh, the rest of the week, right? man, it was yeah, it was. But uh, you know, one thing I did try was axe throwing. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a big trend now. I mean, oh, people yeah, are yeah. doing that. Yeah, they had a a, a little thing there, uh, like a trailer, but it was it was had like chain link around it, and they had the stuff, and you could throw to deflect the yeah uh, oh, axe. Oh, those those axes came flying back at you. It was it was rough. Yeah, if you didn't hit it right. Uh, so yeah, we uh, each of uh, Penny and her two sisters were there uh, in their families, and. Uh, each of the sisters beat their husbands in axe throwing. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Which makes me a little nervous. Uh, yeah. Because Penny's family, they can trace back on their family tree uh, to the, who was it? Lizzie? Was it? Who was the axe wielding murderer? Uh, there's some famous, uh, I want to say Lizzie Borden, something like that. Anyway, look it up. You can, our, our people at home can look it up. But uh, they're related. They're related to this lady. And there was a, mm. uh, it was a big old story about this wow. axe-wielding uh, lady. Yeah, that's quite a unique heritage. Yes, so apparently it's in the blood because they were they had those axes like right on point there. So anyway, uh, no, I guess we that's were. Um, I won't talk about ours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were at the beach in the rain. Weren't we, you? No, we had like we had like a little bit of spit like for a morning, but. The whole time it was sunshiny and nice, so well, good weather. So yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, got to sit on uh, the swings, slow look in the beach, and uh, that's joy. Nice. Yeah, I yeah, know it's good. It's here. It's Summer's good. here. It is. It yep. is. Yep. Uh, it is. And also is here in your backyards. If you have a backyard, I don't know where where people live. I don't necessarily have a backyard, so I'm interested in how this is going to work out in the I want to see them concrete, the concrete. <laughs> urban environment of Richmond City. Yeah, but anyhow, right now across the na- across the East Coast. Uh, we're preparing for a great spectacle. The seventeen-year mm. cicadas are coming That's up. That's what I hear. Yeah, and they are loud, rising up from the ground. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a phenomenon. It's getting ready to take place, and it's going to be loud. Yeah, they all they all come out. Fantastic. Yeah, I think it happens. There's a seventeen-year. This is called Brood X. So, yeah, and then there's a thirteen-year. And there, yeah. I mean, what are they doing for seventeen years down there? Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, it's like, then it's like a launch party. Do we all know at this point we just, and then you hear, I mean, all day and night. Yes. In unison. That was perfect. That was a perfect. Yeah. <laughs> what does it sound yeah. like again? You know, <laughs> you know, okay. Well, so. you know, if we were really thinking and, uh, and if we could just pass this on to our churches that at the height of this, whenever this breaks out, if they could just tell a story from the Bible uh, and then walk those little children outside to the swarms of locusts all around. Like, <laughs> oh, that'd be great. What a perfect object lesson. Like, you only, once in 17 years, you can really use this one, That's you know, right. and stand out as they're just being covered in them and, and read the story. Ah, oh, it's perfect. But they're not supposed to be dangerous or anything. No, no, yeah, no. no. Yeah, no. yeah. Not these. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, yeah. Just, they're just loud. Yeah. Well, they're going to terrify people, even if they're oh, yeah. taking <laughs> if, if they show up around here, I don't know if Virginia is in that... Uh, zone or not but um they show up here my my family will not leave the house probably yeah it's an it's yeah. an east coast experience yeah, yeah. okay from yeah. what i've seen we're yeah. good we're doing ufos on the west coast we're doing cicadas on the east coast well fantastic <laughs> where we roll fantastic fantastic so, well hey well let's dive yeah. into the show today <laughs> that's right that's yep. good yeah. luck out there that's right. good, yeah. luck. good luck yeah. good luck that's right uh, <laughs> no so, uh, answers here no, no answers just just observation we just yes. know it's coming that's yeah right. yeah so uh, today we're excited about the podcast as we Absolutely. continue uh, the conversation on brain, full brain Christianity and spiritual growth and our spiritual formation and, and what does that look like. So today on the show, we welcome Michael Hendricks to the show. We're excited about him being here. He's been a trainer for more than 25 years. Uh, he is a former pastor of spiritual formation at Flatirons Community Church in Lafayette, Colorado. Uh, he's also served in training people uh, across the globe. And uh, he's the author of Basic Training for Walking with Jesus and Intentional Apprenticeship. And he is also the co-author of our guest from last week, Jim Wilder, of The Other Half of the Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Ah, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. How are the cicadas there in uh, Colorado? <laughs> Any issues there? Well, maybe the cold winters or the altitude here, they don't make it through, so we don't have to worry about that problem. Ah, <laughs> well, you. see. That's good. Yeah, yep, there's yeah. something good about that. That's you right. have other battles, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, as we begin the podcast today, just for our listeners out there, tell us a little bit about your faith journey and the work that you're doing now. Yeah, I didn't uh, didn't grow up as a Christian, didn't grow up going to church, uh, basically didn't know anything about it. About the only time I went to church is when I would visit my grandma in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. We're from Colorado, so it was, you know, take the five-hour drive, and she would kind of make us go to church with her, and my only real memory of that it was just, was fairly boring. <laughs> and that's actually important in my story because, you know, many years later, when I was 19 years old, I was kind of going through a bit of an existential crisis around the issue of what's the meaning of life, you know? Mm. And uh, this was after my, you know, my senior year of high school and my my first year of college. I remember our, our freshman dorm floor late at night, you know, after some consuming some beverages or whatever, and we'd talk about what the meaning of life is. And it seemed like everyone had an idea and a philosophy. And a, but if I was honest, the only thing I could say is I have no idea. Mm. And uh, but then I would look at the people around me, you know, on the campus and in my family, and, life, and no one was living life as though it had no meaning. And so I had this weird tension in my brain and it's like, what, I don't understand what this is all about. And, uh, so after my freshman year, I moved home for the summer and, uh, got a summer job 
uh, you know, delivering blueprints in downtown Denver on a bicycle between the reproduction company and like the oil companies and construction companies. So I'm zipping back and forth, you know, all day on the bicycle downtown Denver. And uh, one night that summer, I could not fall asleep for the life of me. It was like one o'clock, two o'clock. It kept going on. And finally, I got out of bed and walked upstairs. And, and my parents have this bookshelf that's from the floor to the ceiling filled with books. And so I was just looking for a book to help me help bring sleep to my eyes. And as I scanned the bookshelf, I saw a Bible. And I remember my experiences with my grandma at church and how boring it was. So I grabbed the Bible thinking, well, this is probably a boring book. It's going to help me fall asleep. And so I went back downstairs and I just kind of randomly opened the Bible. I'd never read the Bible before. I just opened it in the middle and it said, New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that phrase meant absolutely nothing to me. Like what's new about it? Is it like a newer translation of the Old Testament? I have no idea what's new. And so I turned the page and I started reading, of course, you know, the book of Matthew, the first book in the New, New Testament. And, uh, and immediately I read, like, this guy had these children, had these, and this guy begat 12, ki- ch- 12 children who begat these children. It went on and on and on. And I thought, wow, this truly is a boring book. Mm-hmm. And uh, thankfully, though, I didn't, I didn't give up after the genealogies and I kept reading. And it got to the point where it's clear to me that this was about Jesus for some reason it hadn't clicked me before and but but just seeing where it started the book started following Jesus through his life and I'd always been interested in Jesus and never really heard about him never read the bible so I started I probably read three or no I think I probably read five chapters of Matthew I was somewhere into the sermon on the mount and it's kind of hard to explain what happened but without words being spoken I sensed that God was saying to me I I hear this question you have in life about the meaning of life and i'm bringing you the answer and the answer is in my son jesus and that was like boom that was like an explosion for me it was like you know i I remember immediately rolling over in my bed on my knees and praying to god and thank thanking Mm -hmm. him for showing me the meaning of life and as far as i know that's the first time i prayed in my life and so I kind of came from a, from zero spiritual background, Christianity background, to all of a sudden reading this Bible and having the, my, it's almost like my eyes were open. And I, I went into almost like a spiritual euphoria for the next couple of months. Like I didn't know what was happening to me. You know, I, did, I didn't start going to church because there was nowhere in the book of Matthew that it told me I was supposed to go to church. So I just <laughs> kept reading Matthew every night. And I didn't tell anybody. I didn't know I was supposed to or should and everything, but I just kept reading all summer long. Um, and then went back to college the next year, you know, I, one of my friends, I, we decided to live together and I go into the house and I'm starting to unpack. And my good friend walks in and says, Hey, Michael, I don't know if I'm going to live with you this year. And I said, well, what's up, Steve? And he goes, well, last year we partied a lot. We got drunk a lot together, but I'm a Christian and I didn't really walk with Jesus last year, but over the summer I've recommitted my life and I'm not going to party with you. So you may not want to live with me. Mm. And as soon as Steve said, I'm not a Christian, I basically ignored everything he said until I got my chance, you know, and he stopped talking. And I said, Steve, I'm a Christian too. And his jaw dropped. And it was literally <laughs> the last thing he was expecting to be coming out of my mouth at that point. Yeah. And so Steve and I then, you know, we sat down and I asked him question after question. I had all these questions and everything. And finally, Steve says, well, let's get, let's join a, a, a Christian group here on campus. And so we can meet other Christians and, and get involved in a group. And I didn't even know what any of that meant, but, we got involved in a group and uh, 
you know, I'd say from then, that's late August to the first time I went back home to my family, which was in November for Thanksgiving, I literally felt like a different person. Hmm. I felt so different that I was wondering if my family was going to recognize me because I felt like I looked different. Hmm. And so, you know, that ties into the other half of church was, what does this radical transformation look like? Why do we see it sometimes and why don't we always see it? And so that was kind of my own personal story as well. Wow. That's good. That's exciting, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I like that. I like that. And then when, from there, uh, did you pursue, how did you end up in, in the church? Uh, so once the college group dispersed because we graduated, people got married, people moved away, stuff like that. And I also saw a simultaneous change in my what I would say my growth, the amount of growth I saw as a Christian, like I had this explosive growth for like six, seven years, something like that. And then my growth, it's not like it didn't grow at all, but it really became much more, much slower, much more stubborn. And there seemed to be areas of my life that almost were resistant to change. And the usual Christian prescriptions that we assign that helped me a lot, that changed me in lots of other areas, they didn't seem to affect these areas of my life. And I didn't know why, you know, was I doing something wrong or is my church doing something wrong or, you know, what's, or does this not work? Is, is this just the way it always is? You have a growth spurt and then, and then the rest of our growth is kind of disappointing for the rest of life, you know? And so I was working in the corporate world and I, I started going to seminary thinking that might answer some of my questions. And I saw, you know, through my, that probably made it worse, right? No, <laughs> no. I love seminary. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I love learning the stuff, but it didn't it didn't affect my character much. Yeah. Yeah. That and that was the thing I'm thinking about. Why, you know, I I, I start to know how to read Greek and exegete better, know church history and everything. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. But it didn't address these stubborn areas of my character that I didn't know how to change still. So I carried that within, with me into, you know, my wife and I got involved in a church here in the color in Boulder area and the church just started growing. I became an elder of, of the church and eventually they asked me to come on and, and become kind of the pastor of discipleship. They actually just wanted me to help with this certain thing. And, and they said, well, you, you can kind of come up with your own job description. And we had, uh, it was a church that, that was very evangelistic and we had a lot of really just brand new Christians who knew nothing. They reminded me of me when I was 19 and became a Christian. And I said, well, I, you know, I think all these new people and all these people we just baptized, how, how are we helping them grow to maturity? And, and the, the pastor I was talking to said that that is a great question for you to ask, for you to answer. So why don't you come on and do that? What do you want to, what's, what's your title then? And I said, well, how about pastor of discipleship or pastor of spiritual formation? And he said, okay, you're hired, you know, <laughs> come on staff. And so that, that was my job then was helping the people at our church grow to maturity after they come to Jesus. Many of them from very, very non-Christian backgrounds, just like I came from. And so that's how I got into ministry. So what do you, what do you think is the great struggle for people with their spiritual formation? Just observation off the top. Why, why do people struggle with stagnation or growth or their thought of what they think growth is? Well, that was my question. You stated it very well. The question I had, the more I worked as a pastor of discipleship, I kept bumping up into this word sometimes. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Like the trainings, I wrote a book uh, for brand new Christians, uh, a Bible reading plan, uh, a, tr- a five-week training on spiritual disciplines. And, and the results were really good. People come to me and say, wow, this thing has really opened my eyes. But that was just sometimes. Other times it seemed it didn't work for people at all. Or it seemed to work for some kinds of problems or some kinds of issues. And there's other kinds of issues in our life that, that didn't seem to touch at all. And so I kept wondering why this works sometimes and it doesn't work other times. And, uh, and when it was right about that time when I got a phone call from a man who said he's, a, he's an elder of another church in the Denver area. They sent some people up to our church to kind of see what we're doing. And he was on that team. And he said, I saw, I saw the book you wrote. I looked you up on your church website and saw your, your training on spiritual disciplines. I would love to get together with you and talk. And so we met halfway between Boulder and Denver and had lunch together. And we sat down and he says, he said, my name's Bob. And I, I have been a lifelong friend of Dallas Willard. And he said, one of the things Dallas, you know, Dallas wrote a lot about discipleship and how, you know, he called it the great omission, how the church a lot of times forgets the importance of discipleship it's kind of, or it's an external thing, you know, so it's kind of off in the periphery, but it's not like the central task of the church, which Dallas said is, is, is the primarily work that God has given us is producing the character of Christ in, in us and our people. And, and, and Bob said, you know, Dallas would complain to me sometimes that our people are reading my books, he would say, but it doesn't seem like any churches are actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bob looked at me across the table and says, but it seems you're doing it. And, uh, and normally that would be a compliment, but, it, but instead I had all these other questions. I said, yeah. And I kind of vomited all my questions. Like why, <laughs> why does this happen sometimes? And why does this work sometimes and not other times? And why don't we see more radical transformation? And why, why do, why do we see Christian leaders sometimes acting in a way that, doesn't even look like Jesus at all. And, and why do we sometimes see non-Christians that act in a way that's more mature than Christians? I don't understand this. So I kind of like vomit and he, and he said, well, let's start meeting every month and, and look into this together. And so I pulled another pastor friend of mine. And so the three of us started meeting every single month and reading books and talking about it. And it was during that time that he mentioned just kind of this offhand comment comment. He says, we should, we should need, we need to make sure we don't forget the neuroscience angle of discipleship. And, uh, and Bob was like 80 something years old. I thought maybe he was just having a senior moment. Cause that what he said, I did, it was like non, non sequitur. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so I kind of ignored him and, but the following month he, he said it again, he goes, Michael, I think we're, we're ignoring the angle of how God designed the brain to form our character. And, and that's the neuroscience angle. And I said, Bob, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean? Neuroscience and discipleship. And he got kind of this funny smile and came over his face. And he said, well, let me invite Jim Wilder to our meeting next month. Because I think he can explain it better to you than I can to you. And so we met a, a month later and Jim Wilder sat down and he kind of asked me, you know, what do you want from this meeting? Everything. And I kind of vomited again my questions. Why does this work sometimes? Other times not. It seems like, you know, I said, it seems like I'm missing some important pieces of the puzzle. And, uh, And Jim said, you know, Michael, I think it might help you to understand a little bit about how the brain works to form character. And that statement shocked me. At that point, I'd been a Christian for 30 years. I had been a missionary overseas. I'd been, I I had a master's degree from seminary. I'd been an elder for 10 years and a pastor for four years. And no one had ever said that anything like that before. 
that we should understand the way God designed our brains to produce character. And so that was like the start of me for just what I would call the title of the book is the other half of church is, is another half of church. It's like this almost virgin unexplored territory that I've never had never gone down and all these practices and perspectives. And it was like, you know, I pulled my wife into this too. And my wife and I basically jumped into the deep end of the pool and this stuff and Jim and his wife, Katie really just opened up their doors, their lives to us. And we just started drinking from the fire hose. You know, the last time Jim was on, you know what that fire hose is like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's right. I listened yeah. a, little bit of that, a little bit of that episode and he would say one of the profound things. And and you guys like to talk a lot, but when he would stop, I heard the silence. And I thought, yeah. I just yeah, pulled right. him over with the, fi- with yeah. the Jim Wilder fire hose. Yeah. <laughs> We're still drying things off. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how would you define uh, full brain Christianity? Well, again, that's kind of the answer to your previous question is really what's, why do we have these struggles with growth and, uh, and character formation? It's because we're leaving half of the brain out of our, our discipleship equation. And we're leaving largely the, the relational half, you know, the right, one of the things Jim did is he bent down over and he, he pulled out of his briefcase in our meeting, a plastic brain and he, uh, he detached the two <laughs> halves and he said, "All of our, all of our, our, our surroundings, all of our senses to, t- to to sense what's going on around us, they all go into the the right back side of our brainstem, and they travel for, forward on the right side from the back to the front on the right side, and then they cross over behind our eyes to the left side, and then go from the front to the back on the left side." And he said, "Everything you do, you're, there's like a control processor that processes our surroundings." And then he said to me, you know, Michael, the brain really wants one thing more than any other thing. And that thing is joy. But we design joy. We, we define joy really as the brain defines it, which is relational joy, which is the sense that um, you, I feel joy when I can tell on your face, in your eyes, in your body posture, that you are happy that we're together. That I, when I feel I am special to you and I can see it on your face. And he said, joy really functions almost like gasoline in the gas tank. It, it, I mean, we need more than joy for discipleship and character change, but, but joy is very much like the gas tank. If the joy tank is empty, even really good stuff like reading and memorizing the Bible and all sorts of stuff, it's not going to work because your, your tank is empty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about as useful as a brand new car you just purchased and the tank is on empty. And until you fill that tank up, the car's pretty much useless. And so the reason we've seen a lot of this um, stubborn growth and, and a lack of radical transformation is that we've kind of left out the relational. The right side is really our relational brain. Our left brain is our rational brain. And so we've been doing a lot of the rational stuff like biblical teaching and doctrine and willpower and making good choices. I'm sure Jim mentioned all those things when he talked to you. And those things are important but they're actually not the primary drivers. The primary drivers are the right side, which is um, who's happy to be with me right now? Who am I bonded to? Who are my deep, deep attachment, permanent relationships of people who get me, who understand on the inside and can attune to my emotions and the development of my, my identity? Who am I and who are we? What do we do as a people? What are we defined of as a people? That's actually a driver of our character. Our brain cycling six times a second, asking the question, what do my people do here? What does it look like me to act like my people in this situation or that situation? And so building up this group identity, the strong sense of what kind of people are we 
in very specific situations, like when we get cut off by someone in traffic, when we win the lottery, when we lose our job, when we get married, when our, when our kids rebel, everything positive and negative and everything in between is really processed in our brain through joy, who's happy to be with me, who can get me, and what do my people do here? And all of this is faster than conscious thought. It's faster than our willpower. And when he said that, I thought, you know, when Jim first said that our character comes out faster than our willpower, we can't directly change our power by making choices, direct choices. I'm like, well, how in the heck do we change our character if we can't, if it's not under our willpower, right? Yeah. It's such a different way of thinking. And that's when Jim said, you know, Michael, the brain is looking for joy more than any other thing. So the place you start is building joy. Without joy, nothing else we do is going to work very well. A low joy brain is working on fumes. So the first thing you do is you fill up that joy tank until it's nice and high. And then there's a bunch of other stuff we do, like building an identity, learning how to attune. Um, you know, there's a whole host of relational skills we were meant to learn throughout life. You know, the different stages of life, you know, the first three years, there's like seven relational tools we were meant to master, right? And I, and so some of the stuff we do in a whole brain discipleship is my wife and I went back to our infant level skills. You know, it was kind of humiliating to look at those and see, you know, I, there's quite a few of those I'd never got from my parents. Like how to be relational in anger. I never saw that with my parents. It was always kind of explosive, right? How to be relational in shame. You know, for me, for shame, I would go into hiding, separating, you know, going into my own room. And yet it's an integral part of our relational um, resilience that we can stay relational in shame. We can stay relational in anger. We can stay, stay relational in fear. doesn't mean we don't feel those emotions, but we stay relational in them and we keep acting like ourselves. We don't have a collapse of identity, which is what happens when we haven't done this work. We change, you know. That's why sometimes in anger, we act like a three-year-old. We break things. We say words we don't normally say, Right. And Jim says, you know, a lot of times we're ashamed when you do things like that. And he says, you shouldn't be ashamed. That's like a little dashboard on your light. God is saying, ooh, there's something you can look at that we can start talking about together and working in community. And you're going to see that change underneath, you know, underneath the radar. You're going to start feeling spontaneous changes as you do this other kind of work. And uh, it's truly, it's hard to even explain. It's exciting, but you see I see myself reacting to big emotional situations where I say, you know, three or four years ago, I would not have reacted that way. And it's not that I chose to react differently. It just came out. It just came out my pores. And that's very much the other half of church. It's the spontaneous, our spontaneous reactions start to be aligned with the, with the instantaneous character of Jesus. Even to the point, you know, the most advanced skill we want to do develop in discipleship is loving our enemies. And, and notice, just imagine, and I'm not there yet, but imagine if in the face of someone who's insulting you, your first instantaneous response is to love them and feel compassion for them. I don't know anyone who doesn't want that. It's just more like, how, is, that even, is that even possible, right? We mostly <laughs> yeah. think. Yeah. Right, right. Mm. So let me ask you a question, and this may be, this is um, a couple of things, actually, as I'm thinking um, 
I've read the book, and the book is is great, and it's one of these things that we probably need to do as a do do a group with this or some others. But I can't wait to see Brian walking around with a plastic brain. <laughs> that's fantastic. Right. He, yeah. he, that's right. Yeah. Right. But I need one like on a string around yeah. my neck. So you <laughs> you just can just like, feel hey. it apart do it like that. But you know, I think um, I think people struggle with the relational joy and how to fill that tank. So what does that look like to start? I mean, yeah. finding those first places to fill in that. Mm. I mean, that love and that joy. Um, the other is, to me, as I've read through this and as I'm listening to you and as we talked to Jim last week, the context of this happens in community mm. and it's living connected. So it's like um, while there have been monasteries, though there still was connection even to that, but, but I think about isolation, I think about distanced and all that kind of stuff. And and yet to really sense this authentic transformation that comes out of the whole brain, you need community. You need other people in your life that are um that bring you joy or that are, you know, that this, this, this joy, this love, this aspect. Um, can you speak a little more into those two? I mean, I'm, um, just in the joy piece and where do you start there and maybe the importance of community? Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, one of the easiest places to build joy and the starting place because of that is, um, is good exercises of gratitude. Mm. Um, I always, associated gratitude with, with verbal gratitude or thanking God verbally for things and thanking other people. Um, but Jim designed a gratitude exercise that really targets the right brain, pre-conscious nonverbal area that stores joy. It's almost like mainlining joy. Mm-hmm. And it's fueled by memories of, of times where that you have, you're grateful for gold, kind of what we call golden memories in your life. Um, that maybe in the memory too, it can be when, you know, when your first child is born, when you meet your spouse or when you become a Christian, it can be big things like that, but it can be really small things like just a particularly poignant sunset or uh, just a beautiful bird. Sometimes there's something in nature that just jumps out and you think I'm, I'm looking at a taste of heaven right now. And and Jim says the, uh, the ultimate goal for this is to be able to sustain five continuous minutes of nonverbal gratitude. Um, and that, that takes a few months before you can do that because we're just, you know, there's nothing in, in our world that teaches us to do that. And, you know, our phones and social media actually are making us worse where you're just jumping from one topic to another topic to another topic. We're like training our brains to never, ever be able to slow down and just reside, mm-hmm. marinate yeah. in, in a memory of gratitude. Um, Jim said, sometimes those memories are like chewing gum. After you you chew it for a while, the flavor goes away. So sometimes to get to five minutes, you need to have, uh, you need to use a couple memories. Sometimes I only need to use one and sometimes I need to use a a few. Um, But, but that state of gratitude is incredibly healthy for our brain. It puts our brain into a really, really good space Mm -hmm. that it just built, it just does all sorts of really good stuff. It actually train, is training our brain as well to, to be able to find God in, in big emotions and distress where we normally would lose our awareness of him. You know, we don't lose him. He's still there, but we lose our awareness of him. Right. And so, and, and so that's one of the, that's one of the first things I teach people. And also just good, good verbal gratitude exercises as well, like going around the dinner table and everyone 
sharing one thing they're thankful for in the last day or two. You know, and there's, the, you know, I work with churches now. I consult with churches and trying to, you know, bring the other half of church in back into their discipleship. And I always start with joy, the importance of joy and good experience, good exercises of gratitude. And because that makes everything else we do work better. So that's where we always start. We don't always go, go the same order for every church or ministry I work with, but we pretty much always start with building joy and gratitude. And you also asked about the importance of community in this, which is a really good question. Because there's even an area of our brain, it's almost like the community area of our brain that's configured like three faces engaging with each other about who I am. It's almost like three chairs facing each other. I'm always in one of the chairs. And two of the other chairs are, as a baby, that's our physical parents or caretakers. So me, mom, and dad in the ideal situation, if, you know, if it's like a, a case where the father is split town, so it'd be me and my mom and then other people in the community or grandparents or other people like older siblings or, but there's like this triangle. It's like very much like a, a, a three-legged stool. You know, you remove, you move one of those legs or two of those legs and it's wobbly, but you get three legs. It's a real solid foundation of my identity. So building joy in a in three-way relationships, as we get older, we can swap people out of those chairs. So my brain will actually go and find, and that's how we find out who, how do my people act. It'll actually swap the important people I have into those chairs, and, and they are the ones who transmit to me, how do my people act? And, uh, and it's really good for us to have Jesus in one of those other chairs all the time. But that doesn't happen automatically. Um, but but these gratitude practices are actually helping our brain re- let Jesus reside in one of those three chairs more and more consistently because we're just residing and we're marinating in the good things in the close presence times when he was very close to us so that in other times when we're in stress, our brain can remember what that was like. And then Jesus will, you know, his his memory and what we've learned from him will sit in that chair and will inform our instantaneous character. And I know this is some pretty deep water here. It's weird oh, stuff to even no, think about, no, but it's, no. I mean, it's, it's good to get a taste of it at least. <laughs> sure, absolutely. That's part of, that's why the conversation, you know, I mean, that's, that's some good stuff. It's inviting Jesus into your brain, not your heart. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that's another book title. Right yeah, there. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Start inviting Jesus into your brain. Yeah. <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that idea. Uh, very much so. Um, wow. So, I mean, there's, there's so many good parts in um, one of the other areas that you write on, I guess, is really uh, has a lot to do with the correction, but you also deal with some with narcissism and um, the culture in the organization, those kind yeah. of things. So, I mean, there's some really, there's some really good stuff in there. And, um, and I thought about, um, and there again, you deal with the enemy, you know, how do you deal, you know, loving your enemy and how you treat them. And um, I think you divided it up um, into two aspects of enemies. What were, we were just talking about this, Brian, just a few minutes ago. Um, and oh, what was it too? Um, now I just totally, I guess maybe my age is setting in on this. Um, there are kind of two enemy modes our brain goes yes, into. Yes, the enemy modes. Yes, because yeah. you distinguish between the different enemy modes in there, which um, which was the simple, and then I guess the one that's just really much more complex in the sense yep. of how we how we relate uh, or how people relate. And 
And I think that's, I don't know, this is good some information because I think sometimes we we move into that mode and we do need, we need somebody to help us correct <laughs> in that, in that piece, because we may hear something we don't like or, or we may see something or in, it's just, um, but there again, that's that whole community conversation um, in there as well. And that, I guess that's part of that culture of uplifting, healthy correction that you talk about as well. Yeah. It's, it's basically almost, it's almost impossible to love your enemy without a community. And without a solid awareness of Jesus's presence, because yeah. it's such you know, Jim Jim likens the skill of of loving our enemies is kind of like putting a load on our character. Like if I go to the gym and I just start doing, you know, military press with an empty bar, and I can think oh, I'm this really strong guy, and then you walk up and put you know, forty five pound plates on each side, and then I can just barely lift it. Mm-hmm. You know, loving our enemies is kind of the discipleship equivalent to that. It puts a load on our character. Mm. Our character will crack. And uh, and here's where the important thing is. Jim says, instead of feeling shame when your character cracks under that load, you should be, what we, our goal for us is we should say, oh boy, Jesus is going to show me an area of my life that doesn't look like him right now. And he's going to help me make it look like him. And so the, this kind of oh boy attitude of even our failures, Jesus is Jesus is like, oh, this is great. Let's go look at this this mess we've made together, and let's and I'll help you untangle this stuff, and I'll show you what our kingdom looks like here. Because mm-hmm. a lot of this really is teaching, you know, discipleship is teaching us to live in the kingdom of heaven that J- Jesus brought to earth, learning how to live in that kingdom in this messy earth, right? Mm-hmm. And even even more below that is really the ultimate aim of discipleship is learning how to love like Jesus loved. And the whole thing's aiming at love. All the relational stuff on the right brain, they're all aspects without which we our love falls apart. So we're building up all these areas in our relational skill set with the express purpose, not just of being high having high emotional resilience and all this kind of stuff. That's great. But the ultimate goal of that is that we love like Jesus loves. And Jesus was a man of very high relational and emotional resilience. And he used it with the express purpose of loving really, really well, even people that didn't treat him well. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you read through the New Testament and especially focus on the people that did not treat Jesus well. And you will be astounded the way, how he handles himself, how he holds his mouth, how he he's slow to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, something that James wrote later, you know, one of the basic characteristics of a disciple of Jesus is we're slow to speak and quick to listen, right? That's kind of like one of the, one of the signs we look for if our, our, our discipleship is just a bunch of words or is it actually sitting, setting roots down and sending them into the deep depths of our spirit and soul is, are we progressively becoming slower to speak and very quick, quick to listen? Mm-hmm. And that was Jesus to the T. Yeah. And all of that's very, very relational, which is mm-hmm. the other, you know, that's the other half of church. The really del- delving, bringing the, we're not, we're not arguing for a right brain Christianity instead of left brain Christianity. We're, we're arguing for a full brain right. Christianity, which melds in, in, in great balance, the left brain and right brain um, aspects and bringing in these relational things about, especially the skills of how do we love really well. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I want to thank you for um, for the investment that you and Jim did in the book, The Other Half of Church, um, because I think as you read through it, there it's 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 hopeful, um, and I think it's it's proactive, um, and it looks at um, formation and uh, and so I just um, I'm, I I love the read and and I appreciate uh, the work that y'all did into it and put into it, but I also um, it also challenges it challenges me, you know, in a sense of of these areas, and so I, I want I want that I want that. So, um, guys, anything else? Yeah, I think it's just the shift of how we think about discipleship mm-hmm. or spiritual formation going from a curriculum-driven experience to truly understanding the creation of God himself in the human body and how it functions, our minds, the way we think, and and, and then how we apply that, and and naturally it comes out. Uh, I I think is, I'm really interested in, I I know, Michael, you work with several churches, but what does that process look like for us going forward? In terms of of raising up a next generation of Jesus followers committed to loving others, loving their enemy, and those natural reactions, that natural flavor of the Holy Spirit coming out, yeah. not working so hard at 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 doing or being, but just a a flow. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, it's, I think it's going to be interesting going forward. Uh, even as as I have to go back and look at for my own discipleship in life. Right. What does this look like? Yeah. But what does this look like for the whole local church? So uh, that's probably a, a big thought, and you might have some answers on it. But uh, I think that's a that's a curiosity right there as we move forward. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yep. So, Michael, I want to thank you for joining the podcast today. Where can people follow you, learn about the writings and work, or just the whole study of spiritual formation and what you've spoken about today? Uh, well, the first thing you can do is, uh, you know, get a copy of the other half of church written by me and, and Jim Wilder. And that kind of explains more at depth what we've kind of delved into today. And if you go to the uh, the website of the organization I work for, which is called lifemodelworks.org. And uh, and you can just fill out an info, you know, contact us thing. And and, and if, uh, if you want to contact me, just put my name. Yeah, I'd love to, to talk more with Michael about this. And I'll get that and get back to you. And uh and just would love, you know, would love to get this spread out across our country and across our world because I really, I really do believe this is the wave that God is bringing uh, to His church uh, to bring to bring in this this relational side of discipleship that's been missing for a while, and and uh, it's really exciting to be a part of this kind of cutting edge of what God I believe is doing. Well, thank you, Michael, for being a part of the show, and thank you for joining us on the Reimagine Podcast. As always, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and download any of the episodes and rate them. Check us out on reimaginecast.com. So for Brad and Brian, I'm Greg. Thanks for listening to the Reimagine Podcast. <laughs>